Thank you very much. It's good to be here, and I appreciate your warm reception already in the class that we just had together, and I'm looking forward to these times as well as the 9 o'clock hours and a few other occasional times. And I'd like to just pray one more time before we get into the material for the morning. Father, I want to ask and plead for your help so that what I do here will not be done in my own strength, nor that the hearing would be done in the strength of the hearers, but that you would come and that you would give me an anointing for this work that is powerful and protecting, guard me from error and from pride and from imbalance and anything that is unbiblical or unhelpful. And grant, Lord Jesus, that Satan would be frustrated in his designs to distort or deflect the truth. And I pray that hearts would be opened the way you opened Lydia's heart to give heed to the truth and that people would be able to look back on this time as an epoch-making time in their lives so that here we saw you and here we met you and here we discovered things about you that made all the difference. So draw near and help me and us in this regard, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a real tentative theory about the relationship between the 20th century and the 21st century. And it's very tentative. I'm not claiming any kind of authority for this idea, but here it is. I see the 20th century, at least in the West and at least in its latter half, as being the century of the self or the century of the therapeutic or the century of psychology, however you want to articulate it in those categories. 1966, Philip Reef wrote a book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And if it was so 30 years ago, it's 10 times so today. And my theory is that the 21st century, this triumph is going to give way to the triumph of astronomy or physics. Isn't that a crazy idea? But what's behind it, whether it's true or not, is this. The world of the therapeutic, the world of secular psychology, the world of the self is small. Tragically small. The human soul was not designed to dwell upon the self and its various states and esteems and values. It was designed not to think primarily about itself and the selves of others and how to fix the self and how to help the self be more adjusted and like itself better. The self was not designed for that. The self was designed to dwell upon God. 
and the majesty of God and the glory of God. And therefore, it is an infinite shrinking of the world of the self to preoccupy itself with itself, which is what it has done now for these five or six or seven decades mainly. And it has been a tragic shrinking of the world. It has resulted in manifold maladies in the world. Let me read you from this month's First Things, which I'm sure many of you read, from this article called Faith and Therapy, the last paragraphs which so gripped me when I read this a few days ago to illustrate this. The 20th century has seen many attacks on Christianity, but the frontal attacks of militant atheists, Marxists, Nazis, have not resulted in as much lost ground for Christians as the more insidious attack of the therapeutic culture. The sense of guilt, the sense of sin, the sense of the sacred, the sense of that there is uh, another order of authority by which we are judged, these have not disappeared entirely from Christian culture, but they have been eroded. If this is difficult to see, it is because of the fog that the culture of therapy emits. An emphatic fog which, no, not emphatic, empathic, draws us in with, with empathy. The empathic fog which surrounds us and confuses us and prevents us from seeing life clearly. We wander around in this fog thinking our enemy is our friend because it so exquisitely is concerned with our health. The only thing powerful enough to cut through this fog is the light of revelation. Revelation reminds us that physical and emotional health is not the alpha and omega of existence. The Gospels tell us that if our hand offends us, we should cut it off. It being better to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go to hell. Likewise, it may be better to enter the kingdom of heaven with a repressed psyche than to enter the other place brimming with self-assertiveness. <laughs> there is no ultimate consolation. Now, this, this almost brought me to tears and, and hearing that you've been out among the suffering church and, and some of you know Sudan and you've been there and you go to some of these places where the church is under the kinds of torments that none of us can scarcely conceive, brought this sentence to life. There is no ultimate consolation to be found in the theories propounded by psychologists. Psychology has very little to say to the majority of the suffering people in the world. And absolutely nothing to say to the fact that all of us must die one day. The therapeutic culture's well-adjusted person, for all his serene sense of self, has one overwhelming problem. He is blinded to the beatific vision, which I take to mean 
If you live within this world of the self, the therapeutic world, the world where you're always thinking about how to get the states of the self remedied, you are missing what you were made for, and that is God. The seeing of God in His glory and His majesty. Now, what in the world did you mean when you said, this is going to give way to the triumph of astronomy? Or physics. And what I mean is, I do not know if a great revival is coming in the West. I am not a prophet. I do not have nearly the confidence that some people do to the effect that we are going to have a massive awakening to the glory and reality and majesty of God and his son in the way of his salvation. I don't know if that's going to happen. I do know from the Bible that it's not going to happen to everybody. And that as lawlessness is multiplied, the love of many will grow cold and they will hand over many to destruction and to persecution. And you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. I know that's going to happen. But given the fact that the human heart is designed for God and given the likelihood that the mass of humanity will not yet give heed to God, still the human heart will not go on being satisfied with a tiny world of the self. It will have to have a better substitute than therapy. It must have a better substitute. And the substitute is going to be, perhaps, articles like this from Newsweek magazine, where you read about what the Hubble telescope is sending back. <gasps> and it just absolutely takes your breath away when you read things like, well, we thought there were maybe a million other galaxies. Galaxies, not stars. And now the radio waves are coming back from galaxies perhaps as far away as 12 billion light years and that there may be as many as 50 million other galaxies or is it billion? No, it says billion. It says billion. <laughs> 50 billion other galaxies. That's what we are made for. Because according, you tell me now, help me preach this. According to Psalm 19, verse 1, this article and the Hubble telescope and those 50 billion galaxies are meant to declare what? The glory of God. It should not trouble you in the least that there is probably one teeny weeny little speck called Earth in this universe where there is humanity. I do believe that. One teeny weeny little speck where there is human beings designed to relate to the creator and everything else is flannel graph. <laughs> to teach childlike people, this is what he's like. That's not an excessive expenditure on God's part. The only people who stumble over this and think, this is all wasted 
on a little teeny weeny human reality. They're not getting it. It's not about us. Get it? It's not about us. It's about the maker. And so that this little teeny weeny speck of human being in his image would wake up out of the world of the therapeutic into the magnificent reality that God is. That's the point of the Hubble telescope. Or maybe you open your newspaper. Oh, I love these sections in the newspaper because there's no section on God in my newspaper. So the next best thing is the section on science and not psychology, but astronomy. And you read about this this star that's called Eta Carinae. Raise your hand if you ever heard of Eta Carinae. Me neither. One person. <laughs> Eta Carinae is the brightest or the biggest object in the sky that is visible to the human eye. And it's a star in our galaxy. And it is probably the biggest star in our galaxy. And is, now get these numbers, four or five million times brighter than our sun. If it were as close as the nearest star besides our sun, we'd be able to read by light. And that's 12 million light years away, not 93 million miles away like our sun. Now, when you read about these things, you can see why people worship. I tell you, if I didn't have a Bible, I would worship at Karenai. I would. Now, let me relate this to preaching. And let me do it through um, Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein died at the middle of this century, 1955. And he had a few things to say about the church and about preaching. Did you know that? Let me read you a paragraph written about him by a uh, scientific specialist in general rel relativity theory. He said, I do see the design of the universe as an essentially religious question. That is, one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business. It's very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion. Although he strikes me as a basically very religious man. And this is the sentence that scared me. Einstein must have looked at what the preachers said, what the preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined. And they just were not talking about the real thing. I tell you, when I read that as a preacher, my whole passion for what my life exists for was doubled in its intensity. Oh, God, if you would give me life, if you would give me breath, if you would keep my mind working a little bit longer, I will bend every effort to try to spread a passion 
for your supremacy in preaching for the joy of all peoples everywhere you'll let me. Because I don't want scientists to look at the preaching in your churches and say, they're blaspheming. I know what glory is. I've got a telescope. They don't have a clue with their daily pep talks about how to get their little psyches fixed and how to get their little marriages working better and how to get themselves fixed with their kids and how to get along better at work and how to, how to, how to, how to, how to. And you sit there wondering, is this supposed to be about God? There are plenty of books how to get marriages working and how to get kids working and how to get your psyche working. And how to feel good about yourself. But there aren't many preachers and many pulpits where the one thing needful, the thing for which the soul is created, the thing for which we're dying in our small, little, insignificant lives. Where is anybody telling the people about a great, glorious, majestic God? Something on the par of Etta Karenai. Well, there are not many around. And my goal here in these three talks is to help you get a vision for devoting yourself to doing that. You see, scientists know things. They know these kinds of facts. They know about the numbers of stars, you know, 100,000 light years across our little galaxy called the Milky Way with how many millions and millions of stars in those galaxies, and they know that our little teeny star called the sun, which burns at about 6,000 degrees centigrade on the cooler surface, is sailing through the universe at about 150 miles a second and will, if God tarries, finish its first circuit around the Milky Way in 200 million years. They know these things. And then they come to church. And maybe they hear this text. Isaiah 40. Isaiah got it. Isaiah got it. Gary, teach Isaiah. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes. I'm so glad he said that. You can be an astronomer, be a Christian. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. Jim, Mary, Martha, Etta Karinai. Every one of them. Billions upon billions upon billions do his bidding. By name, he knows them. And I don't think he uses numbers. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Why is one not missing? Because God said, stay there. 
stay there until I'm done. Now, Einstein knew these things, and Isaiah knew these things. We have a Bible, and we have telescopes, and we should know these things. And it is frightening to know that there are people who come to our churches, thoughtful people, who say, if what I've seen in the night sky without a telescope and the feelings I have felt of awe and reverence and wonder before the sheer existence of reality is what it is, this church is blaspheming. So maybe what I could do this morning is ask the question, why we should hold up the supremacy of God in preaching, and then how? Let's give you an example of how. Let me give a brief answer to why. Why should the supremacy of God, the glory of God, the greatness of God, the majesty of God, the reality of God, all the godness of God, be the substance of every sermon. Please don't misunderstand me now. I'll put in a parenthesis here. And if you read my little teeny book on preaching, you'll know I, I, I believe this and I say this. You should preach about marriage and divorce and drugs and eating disorders and how to get along in the workplace. But the difference is this. Everybody else is doing that, too. What unique thing do you bring to bear here? What unique thing do you bring to bear? And the answer is, you bring to bear God. And you don't bring God down and say, He's relevant. You take these things up and let them get consumed up there in God. You try to help Poor housewife who's just at her wit's end with all these kids and all this work and a husband who doesn't get it. You try to help her not just figure out little routines to make it better. You try to fill her up with God. You try to show her something that just catches her up out of that into God and then send her like a missionary back into those five kids to say, show them God. Unleash on this world five human beings that are ravished with the glory of God. Or 16, like Susanna Wesley. There's a difference. There's a difference here. The reason we should preach that way and make God central is because God is central in the Bible and God is central in God's own affections and purposes. I learned this from Jonathan Edwards and the Bible, um, that, that most recent book, God's Passion for His Glory, is my tribute to what I owe to Jonathan Edwards and his book, The End for Which God Created the World, which is the glory of God. God created the world for the glory of God. God is passionately committed to God and His glory for example, Isaiah 48, 9, for my name's sake, God says, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. 
Behold, I have refined you, but not like silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. You can hear in that text God's passion for God. So the reason you should have a passion for God in preaching is because God's got a passion for God. And you should be like God in your preaching and try to get your heart up into God and His passion for God. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. What are you to proclaim? That His name is exalted. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations and His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods because all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Isn't that clear what our mission is? Declare God is great. Tell me, who else in the world is doing it besides preachers? I mean, if there were 10,000 other occupations that gave themselves to this, I might come here and say, just write how-to books, preachers. I might say that. Nobody's doing this. This is our job. This is why we exist. Or Psalm 40:16. All who seek you shall rejoice and be glad in you. All who love your salvation. Take a little survey here. Raise your hand if you love God's salvation. Amen. Thank you, God. Now, let me tell you what the rest of the text is so you'll all know what your vocation is now. All who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. Not great is your salvation. That's true. But those who love the salvation of God know that they are saved for God Salvation is an overcoming of our sin by the blood of Jesus that we might be freed to come to God. Jesus is our access to God. And so we say, great is the Lord. The Lord be magnified. That's our vocation. So my answer to the question, why should we preach this way, is because God is this way. God made us for himself. God is for himself. Now let me ask the question finally. How? How shall we preach like this? And I want to give you a model from the book of Acts. And if you have a Bible, I would invite you to own it. I mean, open it. You can own it too. Open it to uh, chapter 13 of the book of Acts. This is a sermon preached by the apostle in Antioch of Pisidia by Paul in a synagogue Filled with unbelievers, some of them God-fearers and some of them Jews who knew and did not know, who saw and did not see, who heard and did not hear. How would he do it? 
And I am going to walk you through this sermon because of it, it just overwhelmed me when I did this for myself, and maybe it'll have the same effect on you. So we're going to start at verse 17, and I'm going to give you this as a model, not of how you preach every sermon. I don't think there is a model for how to preach every sermon, except that God should be in every sermon, and they're big. But here we have one sample sermon, and I want you to get a flavor for the place of God in this sermon. It's a history of redemption kind of sermon. Starts at verse 17, and I'm just going to point out God as we walk through it and then draw from closing observations. Verse 17, it was God who chose Israel. You just follow along. I'll be paraphrasing as we go, and you check it out in your versions. It was God who chose Israel from all the peoples of the earth. Verse 17, second half of the verse. It was God who made the people great. In Egypt, that wasn't just natural Jewish fertility. It says God made them grow. God made them great. Last part of the verse, verse 17 at the end. God led them out of Egypt with an uplifted arm. Well, if you read like I've been reading in Exodus these days from, say, chapter 4 to chapter 15, the uplifted arm of God. And why ten plagues, not just one? Why the drowning in the Red Sea? Why? Answer, because I will make known to Pharaoh and to the nations my glory. It's very clear over and over again. It's stated in those passages. And so here, God does it. Verse 18, God bore with Israel in the wilderness or another reading with one slight little single letter change in the Hebrew bore with or God carried Israel like a father carries a child. Guide, sustainer, father. Verse 19, it was God who destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan. It was his pervasive hand. Oh, sure, they swung the sword. But Proverbs 21, 31 says, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory belongs to, tell me, the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. So if you're preaching about the battle, you preach about what? The Lord. Others can talk about the swords and what they're made of and so on. But you can talk about who wins battles. Who wins battles? Get the other perspective elsewhere. Come to this pulpit if you want to hear about why they won the battle. Who won the battle? Because that'll make all the difference in how you get up on Monday morning and go about fighting your battles and whether you feel confidence in God. Verse 19, the second half of the verse, it was God who gave Israel the land of Canaan. He owned it. Those nations didn't own it. God owned it. He gave it to whom he pleased. Verse 20, God gave Israel judges. They didn't just pop up. God gave Israel judges. Verse 21, God gave to Israel her first king, Saul. And verse 22, God removed Saul. God did that. We've read about that in Daniel, haven't we? God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. So he gave Saul and he removed Saul. That wasn't just a political maneuvering. That wasn't just Samuel savvy. God did this. God gave us President Clinton, and God ordained that vote. 
though I would have voted differently. My vote is absolutely irrelevant in running the universe. God has his sovereign, saving, good purposes for this land, and you're good in letting that man serve out his term. If you don't believe that, I don't know how you can stay a Christian. God raises up kings and puts down kings. God runs this world. Daniel 4.32, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. God governed that vote, sin and all. Verse 22 at the second half, God raised up David, son of Jesse. God chose him, a young nobody, slingshot in hand, harp, killer of bears and lions, writer of poems. God chose him, very unlikely candidate for a king, but God is God, and he chooses whom he pleases to be king. Verse 23, it was God who brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. God brought to Israel a savior, doesn't was, wasn't some impersonal force that made the time ripe. God saw the time was right and he did it. It says, as he had promised. You see that little phrase? As he had promised in verse 23. Meaning, this was not an afterthought. Way back then, God thought of it. He planned it. He promised it. And now he's doing it because he said he was going to do it. So not only is he doing it, he planned to do it. And this is a fulfillment of promise. He set things up for it and spoke it. Verses 24 and 25, we meet John the Baptist. Of all the things that could be said now about John the Baptist, what's he going to say? I am not he. No, but after me, one is coming. The sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now, think of this. Why those words? Jesus said there's no greater prophet than John the Baptist. No greater man born among men than John the Baptist and when he comes on the scene, he says, I am not worthy to tie the shoes of this man, Jesus. You see the connection there? Here's the greatest man that's been born of women. And that man says, and here's a man, and I don't dare touch his feet. Get the message? The message is, Jesus is the center here, not John the Baptist. Jesus is big. Jesus, the Son of God, is the center of this story now as he comes incarnate. Verse 26, when Paul says, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Who's the person behind the passive verb has been sent? And the answer is God. To us has been sent the message. So God didn't just do everything in the Old Testament. He didn't just do everything in the incarnation. He's now doing everything in evangelization. God sends this message. God is sending this message. You may commission a missionary. You may ordain a pastor. But God is sending this message. God is doing this. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So God planned it. God accomplished it. God sends it. Now verse 27. Paul goes out of his way to show that even those who do not know God are doing what God planned. This is an amazing way to word this. It says, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him. Whoa, slow up. Because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets. Fulfilled these by condemning. 
What in the world does that mean? You didn't, you, you didn't mean to say that, Paul. You meant to say they recognized and they read and they knew in the prophets what was supposed to happen so that they joined their wills with his will to bring about his purposes. That's what you meant to say. That's not what he said. He said they didn't recognize him. They didn't understand his utterances of the prophets. And in that ignorance, they fulfilled prophecy. So question, who's doing it? Tell me. God's doing it. There's nobody left. The people that are fulfilling the prophecies don't know the prophecies. They're blind to the prophecies. And they're doing them to the letter. Get it? This sermon, this sermon has got a point. God is the point. God is doing this thing called history of redemption. That's the point of telling us that those who fulfilled the promises didn't know what they were doing. Verse 29, same point. Look at this. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Everything written of him. Everything was written. By whom? By God. Through inspiration. And they were just... Fulfilling God's designs. As Acts 2.23, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. One last verse, verse 30. It says God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. And gave him life. So now step back from that sermon, would you, and just think about it for closing two or three minutes here. What's the point? Why? I mean, when you narrate something that happens in your life, pick out any 10 days or any 10 years and tell the story of your life. Do you say God did, 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 God did. And you don't usually talk like that. And if you were to choose to talk like that, what would be the point? The point would be to help your listeners Catch on to the fact that God is the central actor here. God is ruling, God is running, and God means to be known. God means to be known through preaching like this. God wants to be known for who He is, for what He's done. That's why Paul preached like this, and that's why you should preach like this. So when I pray... My my mission statement is I exist and Bethlehem Baptist Church exists to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. And that includes everything. So when I pray for my boys, my little girl's not in school yet. I pray for these boys. Oh, God, whether it's at Bethel College or University of Minnesota or Moody Bible Institute or. Wheaton College or South Higher, Roosevelt Higher, Bethany Academy, or wherever they have been and are now, God, I pray that my boys would see you in every subject. Would understand that it's coming from you 
It's designed by you. It's for you, from you, through you, to you, or all things math and physical education and English and geometry and history and anthropology and spelling. Spelling. Some cynic says, right, spelling. There's a Christian spelling. God is in spelling. Tell me about it. That's the way non-God-centered cynics always respond to that kind of talk. And I say, yeah, spelling. I had a son. I have a son. He's changed now. That's why I said have a son. And he, he was a rebel. And he would ask, why do I have to spell like everybody else spells? <laughs> and I would say, Benjamin, because if you don't spell like everybody else spells, there'll be a hindrance to your communication through writing with other people. You put obstacles in the way. Now, I think every secular teacher would respond like that who didn't believe in God. Okay? So far, we have a godless answer. Next question. Why should I care if, if there are obstacles in the way of my communication? Kids do talk like this. They talk themselves right into corners. But now, at, at this point, there's a division in the house between the God answer and the secular answer. The secular answer would go, look, Ben, teacher might say, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't communicate your ideas clearly, you probably won't get a good job and won't be able to make money, support your family. You probably will be looked down upon, and probably your self-esteem will be badly damaged. Period. End of defense. Another answer might be, Ben, you're created in the image of God who is a great communicator. Not to care about communicating is not to care about reflecting the glory of God. Answer number two, Ben, you claim to be a Christian, and Christians love God and love people. You have some glorious truth inside of you. If you don't care about how that truth gets communicated to people, you're not acting lovingly, and that's a dishonor to your Father in heaven. And third, Benjamin, God sent His Son into the world and called Him the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word is important. God spoke through a Word, and He meant to speak clearly. Be like your Father in heaven. That's another kind of answer. If you don't understand that God should be supreme in spelling, you're not going to get this message. And you're probably going to go back to your pulpit and say, well, sounded nice, but back to business as usual. But if you understand that God is to be supreme in everything, including how your kids spell and why they spell the way they spell, then you might get it. And then God might make His way into your preaching with such centrality and such passion and such supremacy that your congregation would be transformed into radical, God-saturated, God-oriented people so that the city would reverberate from their presence. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, I thank you so much.
for your mercy and condescension toward us. To show us yourself in the history of redemption. To show us yourself in Jesus Christ. To show us yourself in the blessed, holy, infallible, inspired book of the Bible. And to show us yourself in the stars. And to show us yourself in the fellowship of the church. And by the Spirit in the witness of our own hearts. God, you've been so good to stand forth out of unseenness and make your glory known. Oh, open our hearts and unleash our affections and release our tongues and let us speak, I pray, the glory and the majesty of your name in relation to everything for all the peoples. And all the people said, Amen.